Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. We've already raised enough to pay for 11 months' worth of episodes of this show. We're going to keep the fundraising drive going until we've got a full year covered. Please give if you can afford to. Today, Nate welcomes Gary Graff to talk Alice Cooper at 75. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Gary Graff, the author of Alice Cooper at 75. Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nate. So Alice Cooper at 75, does that literally mean he's 75 years old? That literally means he turned 75 in early February, you know, one of those folks that seemed least likely to make it that far. But, but here he is. <laughs> Indeed. Ar- Indeed. And arguably going, going stronger than he ever has. That's hard to, to believe. I mean, the legendary Alice Cooper. One of the things I want to discuss about this is, and, and this is going to be hard for people who weren't around in the 70s, but, and I was a child in the 70s, so maybe your perception is different. But to me, the amount of rumor and mystery around a recording artist that you had in the early 70s is almost unimaginable today. The, the rumors I heard in the school playgrounds about Alice Cooper, like, was he a man or a woman? Was he both? Neither. Was he some sort of, you know, Satanist? People's brother heard they saw him die on stage. No, I really mean it. They cut his head off, you know? And, and the, the aura and mystery around Alice Cooper is really impossible to fathom now, especially, you know, post Muppet Show, Alice Cooper, post guy who hung out with Groucho Marx, Glenn Campbell's golfing buddy, Alice Cooper, you know, what's your take on that? Explain the mystery of Alice Cooper and the music that he had 
and, and how he freaked people out in the early 70s. Absolutely. And, you know, it is it is funny in 2023 when he really is Uncle Alice to all of us we, to think back to 1973, you know, 72, 71, when he was public enemy number one. But that that was what happened. He was the first of all, he was the first real rock star to bring theater to to the rock and roll stage. You had the crazy world of Arthur Brown and, you know, you had Keith Emerson of Emerson, Lake and Palmer sticking daggers into his organ. But in terms of a great big conceptual show, Alice Cooper was the first one who did that. And then you have the what that show was. I mean, yes, he was either being hung from the gallows, being electrocuted in an electric chair, having his head cut off in a guillotine, hacking up baby dolls, you know, stabbing various, you know, people who came on stage. He was nobody knew what to make of him. Uh, his line has long been, you know, we put the stake in the heart of the love generation. This was really there were others you know, bands at the time. But this was, Alice Cooper was the first act. And keep in mind, Alice Cooper was a band before it was a man. But this was the first act that came along in the post-hippie, post-counterculture rock and roll world and planted its own kind of flag and gave, you know, the teenagers really of the early 70s their own kind of music. It wasn't the Beatles. It wasn't the Rolling Stones, even though it was influenced by them musically. But the presentation was something else entirely. And it was something that particular generation of rock and roll fans could claim as their own because their parents hated it. Their older siblings hated it. Johnny Carson hated it. You know, all the the politicians hated it. Um, So, you know, Alice Cooper found his audience you know, kind of kind of by omitting the people who wouldn't like him and then finding the people who would. I think there's a there's a I call it a telescoping effect when I look back at the past and, and things get compressed and, and lines get blurred. And I think Alice Cooper now is seen as, like you said, Uncle Alice. And also he's a, a safe, accepted part of the classic rock pantheon. But at the time in the early 70s, he came up under Frank Zappa to no real success. Then the band, or they, rather than he, then the band moves to Detroit, or, you know, and we'll talk about this in more detail. They moved to Detroit, and they're accepted by the massive live crowds that the MC5 had built over several years. And this was crowds that were used to the Stooges, and Iggy and the Stooges, and the whole craziness of Iggy. And so they really, to me, are along with Grand Funk Railroad, kind of the second wave of Detroit heavy rock that that went over the top, that made it big in a way that the MC5 was too political to do and Iggy was too Iggy <laughs> for the time. too French to do, and sure. And, you know, yeah, they Alice, well, the one thing Alice Cooper had that really often gets eclipsed, you know, by the image, by the stage show and everything, is Alice Cooper had really good music. I mean, this is a band that had not one but two generational anthems, and I'm 18 and School's Out. These are two songs that are going to live well beyond Alice Cooper, well beyond me, well beyond you. You know, people, these are going, I, my line about I'm, I'm 18 has always been, that song smelled like teen spirit before the guys in Nirvana were born. 
Indeed. Yeah, and so so you have, and then behind that, you have a bunch of other good songs too. So the music was there. The musical integrity was there. It wasn't just that Alice Cooper was something you went to see. People put those records on. Those songs got played on the radio, and they still do. And not just on 18 or schools out, but you do hear No More Mr. Nice Guy and Billion Dollar Babies and, you know, Welcome to My Nightmare and Only Women Bleed. And the the catalog runs pretty deep. So that's there's a musical integrity there. And that's as responsible for keeping it alive. And where, like you just noted, that he is an accepted part of the classic rock pantheon. That's because he created classic rock songs not just because he created this incredible stage image. Yeah, very good point. And I'm remiss. I should have asked you to tell us about the book first, because this is a beautiful book. If you're at all into Alice Cooper, and this is a collectible, it's a, it's a fun read, great coffee table book. Tell us about the book a little bit. Oh, wait, I've got to cue your song first. Steph's reminding sure. me. And, and, um, and this will be a prequel to what we talk about next. It's going to be, the origins of Vincent okay. Damon Fournier. Um, this is The Spiders out of Arizona with Don't Blow Your Mind. I said one day I'd find a game. Well, now you know them not the same. I tried to take me for a ride. Now all you feel is suicide. And that was The Spiders, featuring a young Vincent Damon Fernier. Uh, am I saying that, his last name right? Fernier, yes. Yeah, okay, cool. It's French. Uh, it's French. And Detroit, Detroit, where he was born, is a French city, Detroit. I see. <laughs> so it fits. <laughs> and so anyway, that was a regional hit uh, in Phoenix in the 60s. And we'll talk about the, the garage rock roots of Alice Cooper. But tell us a little bit more about the book first. Uh, yeah, this is the third book I've done with this publisher. And as you see, you know, having the book, they do beautiful work with books. Um, but they came to me, you know, they started this new series at 75. And, you know, Captain Obvious here, it's about iconic musicians when they turned 75. And they had done David Bowie and Elton John, and Alice Cooper was the third one up. And me being based in Detroit and with a, with a long history of covering and writing about Alice Cooper, uh, talking about him, a, fr- a friendship of sorts, they asked me to take on the book. And I really love the concept. The idea here is you pick 75 moments or aspects or elements of the artist's career and create 75 chapters about them. And hopefully the book works as either what I call a needle drop, which is you can stick your finger in anywhere, open it up, and there's a nice self-contained chapter you can read. Or if you do read it from start to finish, it's a it's a thorough narrative about Alice Cooper. Plus, you can bench press it or or kill small <laughs> rodents with it. <laughs> but you don't want to mess up the black velvet box cover that it comes in. Oh, no, no. Which... No. And I didn't even know that's something I didn't even know was coming. Uh, that, yeah. You know, just when my when my advanced copy of the book came, there's the black velvet, black light cover. And it's like, you know, wow. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, it would be perfect for your dorm room um, if if you were had a time machine sure. in 1980 or whatever. But yeah, it's it's a beautiful book, and like you say, it, it it works as a cohesive narrative, but it's also easy to drop in and out of. And and you know, each two page spread is a, is a complete narrative, and I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great way to tell the story. But let's go back and t- tell us about the origins of Vincent Fournier, where he came from, how he ended up becoming Alice Cooper. How did he get started? Um, you know, you say he was born in Detroit, but that's not where he grew up. That's not where he made his first impact in the music industry. How did he get to the West Coast and how did he end up forming a band, several bands in Arizona? Yeah, well, he was uh, he was a sickly child and he had he had breathing issues, you know, of a variety of disorders. So the family went west first to Los Angeles and then settled in Phoenix, the dry heat. And, you know, he in Detroit, he was already indoctrinated into pop culture. Uh, you know, he the soupy sales show here. He had a family and family members who were not necessarily musical, but they liked their popular culture. And so the family would sit around, you know, and listen to music, movies. That was all part of it. So he had that ge- generic background, like a lot of kids in the 50s and early 60s would have with pop culture and the the real beginnings of TV you know, as as a regular part in our lives. And he took a lot of that with him. Uh, when he got to Phoenix, you know, he became a rock and roll fan, just like lots of other people, uh, Beatles. He he went deeper in the bands like the Animals and the Yardbirds, you know, the maybe less popular or less, not quite as successful members of the British invasion. And then found kindred spirits in high school, particularly Dennis Dunaway, who became the bass player in the Alice Cooper band. They not only bonded over music, but over uh, over art. You know, they were both into the Surrealists and the Dadaism and Salvador Dali. So between those two two things, that was they had this background that when they did decide to play music together. They had they had kind of concept in mind, not just music. Interestingly, they were also jocks. They were both lettermen on the cross country team and pretty good athletes, you know. So there wasn't that divide either, you know, between you know either you were a jock or a freak or that kind of thing. Uh, so they were kind of they were the cool kids. They worked at the newspaper, the school newspaper. Alice wrote. Alice demonstrated some of his good humor and his intelligence with a regular column. So there was a, there was a lot going on when they finally did settle into being a band. And so they start out as the earwig, which was miming music on stage, right? At some kind of high school or junior high talent show. Yeah, a Letterman talent show. That and they, that they helped put together. But the guy they recruited, Glenn Buxton, was a legit guitar player, and pretty soon they were a real band called the Spiders, right? Right, and they brought in, you know, they found some musicians from one, uh, Michael Bruce came from another high school uh, in the Phoenix area, and they, you know, they formed a real a real band that was very adept at covers, um, you know, playing covers as well as starting to write their own material. One of the interesting aspects about that is Dennis Dunaway didn't know how to play bass when they started, and he kind of taught himself and through that became one of the most inventive bass players in rock history. Again, something else that because of the massive success of the Alice Cooper image, a lot of people don't really understand. But I would put Dennis Dunaway up against Jack Bruce as an inventive rock and roll bass player. 
and you I can hear you can hear it. Yeah, yeah, you can definitely hear it. And one thing that's interesting, I think, I think when a lot of people my age, you know, mid fifties, my age and younger, especially, heavy metal has been redefined as Black Sabbath and Judas Priest post facto, like from the eighties beyond. And when you go back and listen to Alice Cooper, it's heavy. But it's not Black Sabbath heavy, and it's not necessarily heavy metal. It's more what we would call hard rock with the blues influence yeah. and the psychedelic influence, not necessarily the classical elements that made Black Sabbath and Deep Purple you know, heavy metal. But they also did fascinating stuff, a lot of jazz stuff, and even musical, you know, literally a, a song based on a West Side Story uh, song yeah. comes on one of those key albums so it was a period when rock was very adventurous and they were very much in the forefront of that evolution i also want to talk about the way they were part of this garage rock wave like when they were the spiders that single was a literal hit on the local radio and this is something you see in this whole generation of artists just a massive wave of bands emerging in the wake of surf rock and the beatles in the mid 60s but for about five years, they had working opportunities and they could get their records on the radio in a lot of markets. And the difference between the way that, say, Alice Cooper's early bands came up or Todd Rundgren, who you know stole a name they wanted. They wanted to be called the Naz, but Todd Rundgren and Philly already had that name going. They had these opportunities, but just a few years later, bands like Kiss that came along in their wake or Cheap Trick would have to really struggle to get any kind of gig. And, and you almost had to have funding to get into the marketplace. But in the 60s, these young bands could actually, you know, make a living and make their mark. And I want to play our next song and then we'll talk about the name Alice Cooper and how they got it. But this is The Ballad of Dwight Fry, one of the great classics off their third album. That was Alice Cooper, the band, doing Ballad of Dwight Fry, which is a super heavy song. And if you never heard the Melvins version off their Lysol album, I highly recommend it. You can tell that Alice Cooper is one of the definitive root sources of hard rock and heavy metal when you hear the Melvins. You can just hear how much I the Melvins grew off it. I have to tell you, this is the first interview I've done for an Alice Cooper book where somebody mentioned the Melvins. So good for you. <laughs> very very you. happy. Uh, very. I've been writing about writing about the Melvins for a long time, and it's uh, it's great to have them come up in something like this. Well, cool. I'm glad to meet another nerd. Welcome. <laughs> this is Nerd Central. Yeah. So, um, but so they they go through a few names. They don't have quite the right package, but then suddenly it all comes together. How did they get the name Alice Cooper? Because that really is the first piece of the puzzle that made them distinctive and unique. Yeah, well, which story would you like is what it comes down to. Start with the uh, legend. With that. I mean, there was a great legend that they, they got it from an, a Ouija board. You know, they were playing at their then manager's mother's house, 
And uh, she was reportedly a medium, and she pulled out a Ouija board. And when Alice, or you know, then Vince, was doing it, it the the board led him towards the spelling of Alice Cooper, which was not quite the case. It was something they literally just came up with. They they were called the Naz at the time, and Todd Rundgren had his band Naz out in the Philadelphia, New Jersey area. Naz had a hit first with Open My Eyes. So they basically they basically got to claim the name. And uh the the, the Naz in LA uh you know had to had to figure out another name. And they they basically sat around tossing around ideas and at one point Alice just kind of blurted out Alice Cooper. I mean he liked he liked the sound of it. You know, he he felt like it you know, it was an allusion to a lot of other characters, you know, especially in kind of film and, you know, like Betty, like Betty Davis and whatever happened to baby Jane, that type of thing. And they recognized at the time what, what, what a name like that could do for them. It would lead to a lot of questions and a lot of attention. Who's Alice Cooper? What's Alice Cooper? Wait a minute. You're all guys. We think because they all had insanely long hair even by hippie standards at the time. So it was really just kind of something they, I wouldn't say fell into, they, they thought it up themselves, but they, it came with a purpose. But people still tell you that it was the Ouija board. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that was one of the many rumors that swirled around Alice Cooper. And, and you know, this is a period of time when, as a child, I'm hearing about the Manson family on the radio, and I'm hearing that Kiss is Knights in Satan service, and the Beatles are somehow linked to the Manson family. And there's rumors about Rod Stewart being, you know, having his stomach pumped, and David Bowie did this, and you know, and Alice Cooper was at the center of all this stuff, and 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 the the ridiculousness, you know, of the of the rumors. I mean, he must have had fifty. Paul is dead kind of rumors swirling around him. But initially he wasn't even Alice Cooper. That was the band name, right? Right. Yeah, it was it was done as the band name. You know, probably inevitable that much like Jethro Tull, a lot of people think Ian Anderson is Jethro Tull, right? Yep. Um so in this case, you know, it only made sense that people would would focus on the singer as Alice Cooper. And for a time, it you know it was there was Alice Cooper the man, Alice Cooper the band, but the man ultimately eclipsed the band, and that's where a lot of the problems came that ultimately led to the breakup of the of the original Alice Cooper band. And how did they hook up with Frank Zappa and his Straight Records project? Like Alice Cooper and Captain Beefheart on the same label is still kind of a head scratcher. Isn't, isn't that great? <laughs> so they were, you, you know, they were part of the L.A. scene. You know, they moved to L.A., were part of that whole Sunset Strip scene, you know, playing at places like the Whiskey A Go-Go. And they befriended members of GTO, Girls Together Outrageously. This was the groupie band or the band of groupies that Frank Zappa, with his taste for the bizarre, turned into a band that recorded albums and everything like that. And they said to the Alice Cooper guys, you know, you should see if Frank wants you for his bizarre, you know, his record label was called Bizarre, right? So they, you know, so they recommended him to Frank, who agreed he, Frank was intrigued because he didn't understand them. That's one of the things he said to them. He says, I don't get you. <laughs> so I got to sign you. And the, the great story that came out of that was he said to him, yeah, come by my house to audition at seven. 
okay, he meant rock and roll time, you know, seven <laughs> in the evening. He wakes up seven o'clock one morning to this banging and crashing and guitar sounds in his downstairs. And he goes down there in his bathroom. You know, what the hell are you doing? Well, you said seven. <laughs> you know, seven o'clock, in the, seven at night, you, you, you idiots. But, but yeah, he, he, signed, he signed them and basically neglected them. You know, over he had he had a lot of other concerns, including his own music, and he never really knew what to do with them. You know, there were no there were no commercial prospects to the band at that point. Yeah, and it's 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 when they meet Bob Ezrin um, that it all comes together. Tell us about the man that Alice Cooper refers to as R. George Martin. Yeah, well, first, I mean, the first thing would would have been Shep Gordon. Oh, yes. When they, Excellent. When they yes. signed the management deal with him, you know, and Shep is a whole story unto himself. There's a documentary, you know, Supermensch about about Shep Gordon. And he wrote a book, you know, they call me Supermensch. But Shep, Shep was a guy with real vision. You know, he had started out in a whole other career, you know, as like a parole counselor and went into rock and roll, actually went into selling weed. And then went into and selling weed to rock stars, and then went into rock and roll management. <laughs> but Shep, Shep was a guy. Yeah, Shep was the guy with the the business vision to match the Alice Cooper band's creative vision. And one of the things, though, he saw was even though he was first attracted to them because he went to a gig that most of the crowd walked out of. And he he felt like if they're getting this kind of reaction, got to be something there. But he also recognized that you know we kind of need to we need to bring this we need to hone it in here and we need to make music that people want to listen to in order to put this over the top. And he went to they really liked the albums, the sound of the albums. I guess who was making at the time. So they went to Canada to try to, to Toronto to try to get Jack Richardson, who was making those records with the Guess Who. And Jack wanted nothing to do with them. He didn't see it, didn't hear it. And he had just hired this guy, Bob Ezrin, you know, another, a kid from Toronto, wanted to get into the record making business. So he had just hired Bob Ezrin at his Nimbus Nine Productions there in Toronto. And one of Bob Ezrin's first job was to go get rid of the guys in the lobby. Yeah, Chef Gordon and Alice Cooper. You know, he wound up, Bob Ezrin wound up being charmed by them. So, you know, they said, we're playing Max's Kansas City in New York. Come and listen to us. Ezrin went went to the show. And this tells you about the genius of Bob Ezrin, you know, who would go on to, he would not only produce Alice Cooper, but Lou Reed and the Rolling Stones and Pink Floyd, The Wall, Deep Purple, Peter Gabriel, Kiss. You know, this guy had this, has had this tremendous career and it tells you about his ears that he went to this typical Alice Cooper show at Max's Kansas city in 1969 and through the crazy psychedelic avant-gardeness that the band was doing at the time, he heard what could happen, including the very beginnings of I'm 18. So he agreed to, you know, the guy who was told to kick them out, of the production company agreed to produce them and they were back in Michigan by this time. And so he went there to work with them and, and what he did was he taught them how to write songs. He imposed melodic sensibilities. He imposed harmonics 
and arrangements and, you know, kind of classic songwriting onto, you know, into this band, but kept a lot of, kept their their own playing sensibility the same, the way they attack their instruments, uh, the lyricism, some of the twisted melodicism. He, he kept all of that intact, but he honed it in and, you know, made it, made it palatable and accessible. Yeah, he's very much a template for this whole generation of producers that are going to dominate hard rock through the 70s and 80s. Somebody like Mutt Lang, uh, you know, famous for ACDC and Def Leppard comes to mind. I mean, you know, just the kind of guy who makes sure everybody's in tune. He makes sure the drummer's keeping the time right. He makes sure they've got song structure. He does the classic George Martin stuff and says like, hey, what if we start the song with the chorus? Or maybe we should take out that long guitar solo in the middle and, and have some a tight little break. That kind of stuff to make it it's really more like jim cutting than you know he's not forcing anything on the band he's not bringing in session musicians to to overwrite stuff he's not bringing in outside songwriters but he's taking the band's innate creativity and he's polishing it into a diamond that can sell but let's take a quick break here for our sponsors when we come back we'll talk about the heyday of the alice cooper spectacle Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And yeah, thank you for bringing up Shep Gordon. I meant to bring him up before Bob Ezrin. And one key thing, he did two key things I want to bring up. First off, the first business decision he made was they, they had been offered $30,000 in an advance from uh, Frank Zappa's record label, which was a subsidiary of Warner Brothers. And he told him, now let's take 3000 and keep the rights to the music, which is a really smart long-term play. But the way the band saw it at the time was, we're taking a chance on this guy's first decision and we're 27 grand in the hole. The second thing he did, he was a true student of Colonel Tom Parker. And there was an infamous incident at the Toronto rock and roll revival involving a chicken. Tell us what happened with the chicken and what was Shep Gordon's role in the whole thing. Sure. So the, the, the Toronto festival, which is where John Lennon played, the doors played and Shep Gordon was helping the promoters and he agreed to help them out gratis if they would put his band on 
in a, in a plum position, Alice Cooper. And John Lennon, interestingly, did not sign on to that festival until the day before it. But Shep made his move and said, OK, Alice Cooper goes on between the doors and John Lennon. Brilliant. So yeah. Alice Cooper's on stage. Yeah, Alice Cooper's on stage that night. They're playing. And this chicken suddenly appears on stage, a live chicken, not a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken or anything, a live chicken. And, you know, Alice goes with it. He is a he's a showman. You know, by this point, he you know, they have some experience. And so he picks the chicken up. And as he likes to, to tell it, you know, he's a Midwestern boy at heart. He doesn't know that chickens don't fly. <laughs> so so he sends the chicken into the air, thinking it's going to spread its wings and fly away. Instead, said chicken plummets into the crowd in the front row, interestingly, into the disabled section, where they, that, that crowd promptly tears it to bits and starts throwing pieces of the, the chicken back at Alice, who's throwing it back. There's some great video of that. Suddenly, it's worldwide news. You know, Rockstar kills chicken on stage. Great addition to the to the Alice Cooper myth, getting plenty of great attention. You know, Frank Zappa calls him the next morning and says, "Did you really kill a chicken on stage?" And Alice says, "No." And he says, "Well," and Zappa says, "Don't tell anybody. You're getting great press on it." Um, but it turned out years later, Shep Gordon, uh, you know, fessed up to Alice that he was the one who had put the chicken on stage, not knowing what would happen but figuring something would come out of it, something attention-getting would come out of it. And something so, did. So there you have the, the first great Alice Cooper prank you know, that, yeah, they, that and, they did on stage that got worldwide attention. And that speaks to the chemistry between Shep and Alice and why they had a lifetime business partnership uh, that's been so successful. But let's get back to Bob Ezrin. So they made two albums for Frank Zappa on his Warner subsidiary. The albums are unfocused. Zappa wasn't paying much attention to him. They didn't do anything. Third album, everything's on the line. Warner doesn't know what to do with them. They're not sure if they're going to stick with them. Ezrin produces I'm 18, and Shep leaks it to a radio station in Windsor, Ontario. And this is like one of these secret weapons because this station reaches Detroit and Cleveland and immediately it's a, it's a hit and and the warner's angry but they released the single and uh you know it makes the charts and love it to death is then released and it's released on the main warner label rather than on zappa's subsidiary label and they are off and running with the stage show the hit singles the full package um talk about alice cooper at their peak as a band this this I don't know, 71, 70 to 74 run, I'd say, you know, albums like Killer um, and Love It to Death, uh, uh, School's Out. You know, I, I remember my older brother and his friends passing those albums back and forth. And those albums would all have that wear where you could see the, the disc outline on the cover because they had been played so much. Um, you know, these are just apocal classic rock albums that that you know, the, the heads at the time were way into. Tell us about the the whole shebang that they put on and the kind of mega stage shows that they, they assembled. Yeah, I mean, everything, you know, they, they hit their jet stream at that time. I'm 18 was a hit, forced Warner Brothers' hand, like you said. But, you know, like any smart record company, Warner Brothers knew what it had and put the muscle of this giant conglomerate 
behind Alice Cooper, you know, and when that happens, you are, you are set up for a success. And then the, the stage show took off, you know, they were able to, they were able to, to make the money to really build the stage show into, into something like nobody had ever seen before all the gimmicks and the gadgets and things like that. Uh, Alice Cooper was one of the first bands that took out its own sound and light rig, uh, you know, its own trucking. There were, there were a lot of firsts that the Alice Cooper band were responsible for in creating templates for the rest of the touring industry. And they were, you know, quite simply, you know, it was Alice Cooper and Led, Led Zeppelin and Elton John were the hard, the hottest acts of the time. You know, they were just instant sellouts wherever they went. Magazine covers, mass media attention, even if it was negative net mass media attention, it worked for the band. Like I said, you know, like I said earlier, they, you know, the more the more you could get certain parts of society to hate them, the greater the more they would build the audience that they that they wanted. Yeah, no doubt. And 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 just went from strength to strength. Tell us about schools out and the whole creation of that anthem. Yeah, I mean that was one, you know, they came Mike Mike Bruce came up with a riff and you know, they the Alice wanted to write something. You know, wanted to write that kind of anthem. They understood, you know, where I'm 18 kind of fit in as a generational anthem. So, why can't we have another one and you know, what is what's the best day of your life, kids? you know, the day that school gets let out. So he built this song, you know, about about school being out. And it you know, of course it connected. And you know, if you need any further proof of how well it connected, here we were in, you know, twenty twenty two and Staples does a commercial using both Alice and Schools Out. In in the commercial with the the little girl in the commercial, you know, coming upon Alice in the aisle, saying, you know, get buying her uh, back to school supplies, and giving Alice a dirty look and saying, I thought you said schools out forever, and he said, No, <laughs> it says schools. It says schools out for summer. <laughs> it actually says forever in the song too, but it was a uh, yeah, it was a great yeah, you know, great commercial. But you know, there it is. That's. You know, that song, like Alice himself, are part of our pop culture fabric now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's one of those ideas that it's hard to believe somebody actually came up with it. It seems like the kind of thing that was always there, that, you know, Alice Cooper's version of School's Out goes back to the ancients. But it was invented by specific people at a specific time and was this massive hit. And it also had great packaging. Tell us about the panties in the record bag. <laughs> Yeah, so they decided, you know, they um, as they were coming up with concepts for the album, and they knew the album was was going to look like an old time wooden school desk. And you know, somewhere along the line, Shep came up with the uh, this thought that, you know, what all would you put in a desk? Pencils, erasers, this and that. Why not panties? Okay, we're getting a little deranged high school here, maybe, but why not panties? And you wrap the album in that. That'll get talked about, surely. Next step is as they go looking for panties, Shep found these panties, I think in France, that were made of paper, therefore flammable, therefore were not allowed to be imported into the United States. So what does Shep do? He orders a bunch of them, then tips off a newspaper reporter that, hey, they're going to they're gonna be coming to this port at this time, and they're going to get turned away. And uh, so suddenly it becomes a newspaper report. 
and <laughs> more more media attention for Alice Cooper. And they they did they did they did wrap the album in panties, non-flammable panties <laughs> that you were allowed to use. And they used to, but you still had this bunch of paper panties around that they used to that they dropped during their concert at the Hollywood, I think it was the, the Hollywood Bowl of the Greek Theater and uh, outdoor concert, and they dropped them over the crowd. Um, and Elton John claims to still have a pair of them. <laughs> he, was at, he was at that concert and said he held on to a pair. <laughs> That's so again, classic. You know, a, lot of, a lot of marketing genius you know, that went along with the good music and the provocative stage show. You know, in England, they, they, they stopped traffic with a truck that had this famous Richard Avedon photo of Alice Cooper with just with a boa constrictor hiding his naughty bits. And they drove it around town and caused traffic jams and caused the sensation there. Uh, they, you know, they, they definitely knew what they were doing. You know, then they were, they were explicitly trying to court attention and it worked. And it worked like a charm. It did. And let's hear a little bit of schools out. This is Alice Cooper's classic ending. That was Schools Out, one of two classic hits, uh, singles from the original lineup of Alice Cooper. But all was not well in the camp. I mean, basically, they ran themselves into the ground. They toured for several years. They produced several albums. They worked with Ezrin uh, for several albums, but kind of to diminishing returns. And eventually, they do an album without Ezrin. And then the band falls apart. Tell us what happened there. There were some, some drug problems, personal issues, creative differences. What broke up there? Uh, you know, kind of, kind of all of the above. Um, you know, burnout was a big factor in it. I mean, these guys were. You know, they put one year. They put two. They put two albums out. Seventy one. You know, you had. Uh, you had Love It to Death and Killer come out the same year. Uh, they were on the constant dread of if they weren't touring, they were writing songs or or in the studio. And you know, that's gonna. You, we know now. Rock bands know now that you know, that burns you out and that you have to leave a little bit of time, you know, just for your own sanity. But it didn't work like that back in the 70s. Back then, you thought that if you were out of sight, even for 10 minutes, you were jeopardizing your career. So, you know, they they ran real hard. Glenn Buxton in particular got into some bad drug problems and essentially became a non-contributing member of the band, seen but literally not heard. You know, they had people, they had another guitar player behind him to cover his parts on stage. And then you had the the building resentment within the band that what was supposed to be a band now felt like a solo act with a backing band, even though they were still writing songs together, still conceiving the stage show together, functioning as a band. The other guys in the band, you know, started started to resent the position and the stature that Alice had. So you get around to your billion dollar baby's album is a huge success, number one billboard and everything. 
But when they got ready to do the next album, which was Muscle of Love, another one where they did two albums in one year, there was a lot of push and pull between Ezrin and the band members, who some of whom kind of still resented him, even though he was responsible for their great success. They they felt like he was, you know, that he had imposed too many things on them. So Ezrin decides he's not going to produce Muscle of Love. And he actually, ironically, it's Jack Richardson, the guy who wanted to get rid of them back, you know, from his lobby back in 1970. And they they recorded a, a subpar album, you know, that sounds a little better in hindsight, but clearly suffered for not having that fifth me- or sixth member of Alice Cooper, you know, Alice Cooper's George Martin. It, it did suffer for that. And then after that, they did decide to take a break. Um, Michael Bruce, in particular, wanted to make a solo album, and Shep did warn everybody at the time, you know, it may not come back together, you know, depending on what everybody does outside and depending on timetables. And as happened, the timetable for what Shep and Alice, the man, wanted to do did not coincide with what the rest of the band wanted to do. And Alice and Shep decided to march on and create Welcome to My Nightmare and kind of left the band behind at that point. Um, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily by design or an evil, evil genius plan on Alice's and Shep's part. They just wanted to do something that they were at a time the rest of the band didn't didn't want to do it. And then once Welcome to My Nightmare was even more successful than anything Alice had done before, the die was cast and the band the band was broken up. Yeah, and tell us a little bit about, you know, Bob Ezrin came back to work on that, but another guy, Dick Wagner, who tell us a little bit about Dick Wagner and how he worked as as the the heart of the band. Yeah, Dick Wagner became the new Michael Bruce, if you will, the new Alice's Alice's right hand man, you know, the the guitar guy on stage next to him and and a songwriter, you know, a songwriting partner. Alice had met Dick when the band moved back to Detroit. Uh Dick was a musician out of out of Flint, had had a couple of, of bands, the Boss Men and then, you know, most famously the Frost. And early in you know, he was a contemporary and influence on uh, Grant Funk Railroad. He, in fact, he employed Mark. He was one of Mark Farner's first bosses um, in in music. Had Mark be part of his band, and you know they knew each other. Alice needed needed a new creative partner and recruited Dick, and and he became you know Dick became a you know Dick had played on some of the earlier albums. You know, uh, Dick, they, you know, he was, he was kind of a hired gun. He played on some of the early Aerosmith and Kiss albums too, you know, when they, when they needed better guitar parts on the albums. So, so, you know, yeah, Alice grabbed, uh, Dick. disillusioned I was when I learned that Dick Wagner had played some of the solos. I thought Joe Perry had played on, uh, right. <laughs> Get Your Wings and <laughs> others, but go ahead. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but he was this gun for hire and a sweetener. You know, he was he was a ringer, and so they brought him to uh, they brought you know they brought him into the Alice Cooper fold, and yeah, you know he co-wrote only Women Bleed, and uh, you know and you know was part of the part of the show, part of the stage show, co-wrote other other songs, and was just he was just that new creative foil, and was with Alice for you know pretty much through you know to the early eighties. And let's go ahead and hear Only Women Bleed, which was a hit single for the newly solo Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. 
She spends her life through pleasing up a man Feeds him dinner or anything she can She cries alone at night too often He smokes and drinks and don't come home at all Only women bleed Only women bleed Only women bleed And that was Only Women Bleed from the first Alice Cooper solo album, Welcome to My Nightmare. And and this was a song I can remember, I must have been eight or nine, uh, hearing on the radio and just talking about it pissed my sister and mother off so much that I, I realized there was more going on with this song than I understood. Because to me, it just sounded like this ballad, you know, and I was completely taken aback um, by the reaction. But it's it's speaks to his mastery of that moment. I don't think that's a single you could get away with now by any means, but it was perfect for the time. It, it was, it was provocative. It had, it had layers of meaning, you know, some of them very obvious others, others that they could argue, you know, were the real meaning of the song that you knew was a bunch of BS. Um, but they, you know, they certainly recognized the provocative nature of that song and went with it. Yeah, and yet it also is kind of an anthem for women in a way, and 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 you know very emotional, and obviously the sympathies are with women, so it was it was a nice swerve. But tell us about this. This is the period when Alice is about to end up on the Muppet Show, but this connection he had with celebrity culture had gone back very early on. He was friends with Groucho Marx really before he was even very famous. Tell us about this. The way. Alice integrated with the Hollywood elite. Well, those those people were the ones, even though everyone else of their generation and most of their fan base reviled Alice Cooper, these guys, and it was the Friars Club back then, but Groucho Marx, Milton Berle, Jack Benny, Sinatra, even Don Rickles, these guys saw in Alice they 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 knew what he was doing. They saw this '70s update of the vaudeville that they came up performing in. Alice used to tell me that George Burns would say to him, "You know, Gracie and I back in the '20s, we used to play places with this guy who had a guillotine and he chopped his head off too." And you know, these they <laughs> they knew what the they knew first of all they knew it was entertainment, and then they knew they understood where it came from you know, that it drew from those Busby Berkeley, MGM music, you know, screen musicals and things like that. And they respected him. They respected Alice for, you know, taking and updating that art form that they had come up in and created and making it, you know, making it relevant for, for a new audience. Not that I think any of them expected that the Alice Cooper fan base would suddenly start coming out to Jack Benny shows, or George Byrne shows, but but they did they did respect and appreciate you know what he was doing artistically, and they also loved playing golf with him because he was a good ringer for the foursomes. So uh, there were there were there were levels of that friendship, but yeah, that was you know that was the group that was the group of adults of mainstream people who really understood and respected what Alice Cooper was about. 
Yeah, and then when he does this segue into, I guess, mainstream entertainment, if he had come along a decade or a decade and a half earlier, this would have been his move into, I'm going to become an all-round entertainer like Bobby Darren or something. But he manages to still be Alice Cooper and do things like The Muppet Show, which was again, one of the weirdest experiences of my childhood, you know, like sure. Alice Muppet Cooper's Show on the Muppet Show. Yeah, he was on yeah, the Sisters, you know, a, a, you know, a, 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 a primetime TV drama. He was on Hollywood Squares. Uh, they found they found the right places to put Alice Cooper where it would be really, really absurd. But, but yeah, yet work. Uh, you know. Yeah, and, and he they, you know, the, was he was only one of his peers who could have done that. You couldn't see Ozzy Osbourne. I, I don't think he could even comfort, you know, you can't even see Ozzy Osbourne answering a question on the Hollywood squares or, or hitting the buzzer at the right time or, you know, any right. of that stuff. It, 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 it's it's those, a really unique. None of those, yeah. None of those people were, were as well known either. You know, Alice, even, even people who didn't listen to Alice Cooper music, who wouldn't go near an Alice Cooper record knew who Alice Cooper was. So that was that that really allowed him to move to move into the cultural mainstream. Yeah, excellent point. And that's and that speaks to Shep Gordon's mastery of media and an ability to cut through and, and make his client the story. And so Alice, you know, has massive success as a solo artist. Then, uh, as so many did, he struggled two stints in rehab. And then has a pretty good comeback in the late 80s. Uh, last question, just tell us about that late 80s comeback and how he worked with the legendary slash infamous Desmond Child and and also how he brought in you know guitar players like Kane Roberts to update his sound and plugged into that MTV glam metal era of the late 80s. Yeah, well, you know, so Alice, you know, burned out and almost died. You know, his, his second... His second bout of addiction was worse than the first, and you know, through a variety of machinations, did finally get clean, and you know, had to go back to Arizona to do it. And really, it was his his wife and his parents who who pushed him through it. Came out the other side feeling a little tentative, but wanting to reclaim, you know, what Alice Cooper was. One of the things he learned with sobriety, though, was there was Alice. He really was able to separate. Alice Cooper, the man from Alice Cooper, the character. And I would argue that that made that Alice Cooper, the character that you see on stage for 80 and 90 minutes was able to become even more ferocious and more raw and scarier than when he was, than when that character was spending 24 hours in the world. You know, Alice could go the other 22 and a half hours of the day, you know, play golf, shop, you know, raises kids. When he got on stage to be that Alice Cooper, he could just let it all go and become, you know, become the master of mayhem up there. So concurrent with that, uh, he also, when he made the first comeback uh, with those first two albums, he want, you know, he wanted to reclaim his spot in the, in the heavy rock world. So he gets with Kane Roberts and makes a couple of really heavy, um, albums, you know, Constrictor and Raise Your Fist and Yell, you know, heavy, heavy, you know, he wanted to be with the, you know, with, with the thrash folks and into that, but having, having us reestablished himself in the hard rock world, it was time to have hits again. So, you know, Desmond Child at the time, 
it was hot off of Bon Jovi, Aerosmith, making career hits for these guys. Alice reached out. Desmond said, yes, damn Zoom, you got poison. You know, Alice is back in, Alice is back in the top 10, makes an album called Trash that's back in the top 20, goes platinum, and is, you know, and kind of settles him back into, into being a hit artist again, and that he's been able to ride ever since then. Yeah, he has had a break in his career momentum since then. And, and I'm glad you described it right, because he, he, he consolidated his base with the heavy albums and then expanded out, you know, brilliantly. It's not complicated, but brilliant strategy and, and speaks to his career. And, you know, it's one of the reasons Alice is with us at 75. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, say David Bowie from the series is not. Not that I think they both lived probably equally hard lives and uh, both cleaned up before they were done. But, you know, David, unfortunately, had cancer. So um, my guest has been Gary Graff. The book is Alice Cooper at 75. And thank you so much. It's been really fun to talk about um, one of my childhood antiheroes. Uh, thank you. And thank you so much for uh, the, for the support of the book. We uh, We appreciate that. Follow the Letter Roll Podcast on Twitter at Letter Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes Richard Aquila to talk about rock and roll during the Kennedy administration. Letter Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.